And we find ourselves this morning focusing our attention on Luke chapter 4, verses 22 through 30. Luke 4, 22 through 30. And if you'll turn there, you should know that um, in order to sort of plant ourselves firmly back into the context of these early days of Jesus' ministry, and because we're going to refer back to the previous paragraphs a time or two, though we're focusing on verses 22 through 30, we're going to actually begin reading in verse 14. So find Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and as you're turning there, I'm going to pause and turn to the Lord and ask him for help. Father, we thank you that there isn't a friend in the world like the lowly Jesus. Not one. And so when we come to his word this morning, we know that we come looking into the face of a friend, one who has given his very life for us, and greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Sometimes, though, Lord, when we look into a friend's face, they tell us hard things. And Jesus has hard things to say this morning to his neighbors and relatives and friends in his hometown. And God, for some of us, he may have hard things to say to us as well. And wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so as Jesus is our friend, if he wounds us today, Lord, help us to trust him and help us, Lord, to leave this place this morning, not simply wounded, but healed and having hope. God, I can't affect any of this with my own words merely. We need you to come by your Holy Spirit and give us your truth today, not in word only, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. And we pray that you would do this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet 
And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, I find this to be one of the most intriguing and, if I may say it reverently, entertaining little vignettes in all the gospel accounts. If I were a novelist or a playwright, this would be the exact kind of story that I would want to write. Luke 4, 14 through 30, contains all the elements of page-turning drama, doesn't it? You have a hometown hero who is praised by all, seems to be on the fast track to success. People are flocking to hear him giving him standing ovations we could imagine wherever he goes. Perhaps if we could put it in modern context, young mothers were so impressed with him that they were thinking of naming their children after him. All of these things. But then like every intriguing drama, there's a remarkable turn of events, isn't there? In fact, the very same people by the end of this story who had been giving him ovations are now standing and shouting very different words in very different tones of voice with very different facial expressions as they sit in the same audience. And the story also includes the suspense of a near-death experience. And when you get to verses 28 and 29, you can almost hear the dramatic music mimicking your heartbeat in the background of the story as they are leading Jesus to the brow of the hill and you're wondering what is going to happen here. And then, again, as in all good suspense stories, Luke's story ends with a dramatic rescue and the hero lives to see another day. I say again, if you can allow your imagination to transport you back 2,000 years into this scene, Luke 4, 14 through 30, is really one of the most engaging stories in the Bible. There is, and again I say it respectfully, a good deal of entertainment value in this story. But there are a couple of differences between Luke 4 and modern drama. First of all is that Luke 4 is entirely factual, isn't it? This is not a manuscript that is the product of a fertile imagination. It's not historical fiction, a la The Sound of Music or Braveheart, where someone takes a few of the factual details and mixes them up with some other things that are more cinematically interesting and kind of melds it all together to make a good story. Every word of this compelling story is actual historical fact. These things really happened. And the other difference between Luke's account And other entertaining dramas is that this story was emphatically not written for our enjoyment. In fact, as you read this story, you may find yourself feeling the opposite of enjoyment. You may feel yourself feeling convicted. You may see your face in the crowd at Nazareth this morning. I hope it's not so, but if it needs to be so, I hope it is so. If our mind's eye is able to carry us back, and set us down in the back row of the synagogue at Nazareth. Our attention, yes, is going to be riveted, and our minds are going to be fascinated. Our sense of adventure may be piqued. But if our imagination really takes us back to Nazareth this morning, we're going to see far more than an adventure story, far more than an intriguing account. If you go with Luke to Jesus' hometown this morning, you just might see your own face in the crowd, both as it cheers... And as it jeers, you might just find that you are not all that different from the fickle, comfortable, religious masses in Nazareth. And if you do, then the primary value of this story won't be entertainment, but Lord willing, it will be enlightenment. 
you'll see your own face. And you'll see the face of Jesus perhaps better than you did when you came in this morning. So let's travel back to Nazareth. Let's sit ourselves down amongst the gathered congregation there at Nazareth Synagogue and watch this drama unfold. And I'm going to suggest to you that it unfolds really in three acts, three parts. Act 1 in verses 14 through 22a, you might call hometown hero. That's what we find in those verses. In verses 22b through 27, Act 2, I call it hometown hero? Question mark? And then Act 3, verses 28 through 30, I call a hill on which to die. A hill on which to die. Three acts, so without further ado, let's go quickly to Act 1. Hometown hero. That's what we find in verses 14 through 22a. Jesus was, at least in the beginning stages of becoming a hometown hero. And everybody loves a hometown hero and longs to cheer for the hometown hero. That's why, about a decade ago, so many people in this city were so eager for Ken Griffey Jr. to be in a Reds uniform. Not just because he could play really well, but also because his dad played here and because he grew up here and he went to Moeller High. He was a hometown hero. And it's why, for better or worse, I won't tell you which one I think, but for better or for worse, people in Cincinnati are so dedicated to Pete Rose. Not just because he's the hit king and he played for the Reds, but because he played at West High and he grew up on the west side of town. And it's why, as Mark will tell you, again, for better or for worse, I can rattle off for you a long list of names this morning of famous people who are born and raised in the state of Mississippi. Oprah Winfrey, Elvis Presley, B.B. King, Jerry Rice, Morgan Freeman, Shepard Smith, and I could go on for hours. When someone is from your hometown or your home county or your home state and they make it big, it makes everyone else feel a little bit better about themselves, doesn't it? Especially if you're from somewhere backwoods like Mississippi. And it would seem... Now, that was the sort of emotional uplift that the people in Nazareth were looking for and the people in Galilee as well. As Jesus' fame as a healer and as a teacher began to build, they were seeing this man as a potential hometown hero. They wouldn't have called it that like we do, but that's what it was. He began his ministry, verse 14, in the region of Galilee. To think of it again in modern terms, he began his ministry kind of in the surrounding county, in the county, if you will, where Nazareth, his hometown, was situated. And his fame quickly began to spread in that county. So that, verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, verse 20, all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. This was no ordinary teacher. Not only was he an amazing teacher, not only was he a healer, but he's from here. He's from Nazareth. And so all the people in verse 22 were speaking well of him. Or to translate that verse a little bit more literally, everyone was testifying about him is what it literally says. Everyone was saying to one another, declaring the words he speaks, the things he does, they're right, they're true, they're amazing. Everyone was speaking well of him. Indeed, Jesus' very lips seemed to drip with grace. And we can see why the people said all these things if we remind ourselves of what Jesus had come to do back in verse 18. To bring good news to the poor. To love the downtrodden. To help the shackled. To bring recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. All these things that we saw last time. And though 
We're not exactly sure whether the people in Nazareth interpreted Jesus' words spiritually or physically. We're not sure if they expected Jesus to give them physical freedom from the Roman Empire or whether they hoped for the larger blessing of freedom from the power of sin. One thing is clear. They were glad about what Jesus had to offer. They were glad about what Jesus had to offer them. Just as we should be, the people of Nazareth were excited that Jesus had come to give them garments of praise in exchange for the rags of oppression that they had been wearing for so many years. And I have to just pause here and ask, are you excited about what Jesus offers you? Do you go to work? Do you go amongst your friends? Do you go to the fellowship meal? Will you go to the lunch table today speaking well of him like the people at Nazareth initially did? Are you as happy about Jesus as they seem to have been? Do you wonder at the gracious words that fall from his lips? Do you hunger for the word of God and the presence of Jesus in your life? Like us, the people of Nazareth with Jesus himself giving the morning sermon had every reason to be thrilled. And doubly so because not only was Jesus preaching in their village, but Jesus was from their village. He was theirs. They could have put a little sign beside the road as you enter town saying, Boyhood home of Jesus, of Nazareth, the Messiah. Perhaps they intended to do something just like that. Up through the middle of chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus was Nazareth's very own hometown hero. But then that brings us to Act 2, which I call hometown hero. Beginning in the middle of verse 22. Because beginning in the middle of verse 22, the situation in Nazareth changed quite quickly and quite dramatically. Did it not? In verse 22, at the end of the verse, the people's attitude changed and their words changed. And they began to say, is this not Joseph's son? Now, it's possible, it's possible that we should hear that question with happy and exuberant tones of voice behind it. Perhaps the people were saying, as they chuckled to themselves, is this not Joseph's son? Fancy that. The Messiah grew up right under our noses and we didn't even know it. What an amazing turn of events. What a pleasant surprise. It's possible that that's what they meant in verse 22. But given the way Jesus responds to them in verse 23 with a series of rebukes, we should probably hear a little different tone of voice behind the question, is this not Joseph's son? We don't know exactly how it happened, but maybe it was an older man in the congregation who was listening to the women as they ooed and awed over Jesus and who was seeing the young people hanging on his very words. And he stood up in the back of the congregation and said, now, everyone just settle down for a moment. After all, isn't this Joseph's son? Let's just put our heads on straight for a minute or two. Let's remember that this boy grew up right here in Nazareth. Some of you old women changed his diapers, didn't you? And some of you young men used to play hide-and-seek with him. In fact, he helped his daddy make these very pews on which we're sitting here this morning. We've all known Jesus for 30 years, and we never saw the Messiah in him before. So let's just slow down here. He's had a lot of good things to say, no doubt. Yes, he is a wonderful speaker, and all the folks up at Capernaum have reported wonderful happenings. It's true. But let's not get carried away. He is, after all, still just Joseph's son. That seems to have been the attitude 
behind the question that was asked at the end of verse 22. Is this not Joseph's son? And though the negativity wasn't stated quite so fully as I've just interpolated for you, Jesus understood exactly what was meant as his reply in verses 23 and following illustrates. Jesus knew what was in the people's hearts. He almost certainly saw the change of expression on some of their faces as it went from smiles of joy and wonder to furrowed brows as this old man or whoever it was began to propound his logic. And apparently some of them began to repeat the question to one another. For doesn't Luke tell us there in verse 22 that they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? It may have began with one person, but soon it was rippling through the crowd. And people turned to one another and said, that's right, this is Joseph's son. Wait a second here. What are we thinking? We've known him all his life. And the sentiment became universal. So with this one question, everyone was coming back down to earth a little bit. And Jesus knew that their next question was going to be something like this in verse 23. Physician, Jesus... If you really are the Messiah, if Isaiah 61 is really all about you, as we saw that it was in verse 18, if you really do have the power to heal the blind and to set free the oppressed, why don't you do a little bit of healing here in your own hometown? Physician, heal Nazareth. Heal yourself. And in so doing, heal your own people. And then note what they say or what Jesus quotes that's in their hearts in verse 23. Whatever we have heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. They don't say what you did in Capernaum, do here. They don't believe that he did it. Whatever we heard you did, do it here. They want proof now. We've heard what you did in Capernaum, but we haven't seen it for ourselves. So why don't you do a few miracles here and then maybe we'll begin to see you as something just a little bit more than Joseph's son. Now, again, the synagogue goers that morning didn't actually say all that. Jesus said it for them in verse 23 because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was behind the question. Is this not Joseph's son? And so based on their doubts and their misgivings and their jealousies and their antagonism. To which this one little question was giving rise and rippling through the congregation. Jesus issued a blunt and memorable response there in verse 24, didn't he? This is what we remember about this passage. Jesus' response to their unbelief and their jealousy and their hardness of heart is, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. That's why I entitled this section Hometown Hero and entitled the sermon Hometown Hero. Because insofar as the hero is a prophet who is speaking the words of God, the hometown folks always have a hard time really listening to what he has to say. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. That's the famous and memorable quote. But in the verses that surround that memorable soundbite, Jesus explained why it was true. Why is it that no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Why is it difficult for the hometown crowd to welcome Jesus back as Messiah and Lord? Why did they stumble over his tall claims and his miracles and so on? Well, if we look closely at what Jesus says, we'll see a couple of reasons, both of which I think can serve as helpful mirrors to our own souls. This is where I said you may see your face in the crowd. As we eavesdrop on the synagogue service in Nazareth, and as we decide what we are going to do with Jesus, we might just see that Jesus may not be as welcome in our lives as we think him to be. 
Why is it that no prophet is welcome in his own town? Two reasons I think Jesus gives us here. The first is familiarity. Familiarity. I think this is the primary significance behind the people's question. Is this not Joseph's son? In other words, because these people, some of them had wiped his nose when he was a little boy, and some of them had played ball with him, and some of them had taught him in Sabbath school, and some of them had bought the tables and the wagon wheels that were assembled in his daddy's shop. They had a hard time believing that Jesus, little Jesus, Joseph's boy, could possibly be the Messiah. There wasn't the same reaction in other towns. There hadn't been the same response in the other towns in Galilee, as we saw in verses 14 and 15. And we're going to see next week in verses 31 and following that there wouldn't be the same reaction in Capernaum. It was only in Jesus' hometown where the response was markedly different. Instead of devotion in Jesus' hometown, there was doubt. Instead of believing Jesus, they belittled him. And the question is, why? Well, it wasn't what Jesus was teaching that was the problem. Remember, the the people actually praised what he had to say in the first half of verse 22. After he got done speaking, he sat down and everyone was looking at him and they all praised what he had to say. They all testified about him. He speaks the truth. So it wasn't so much Jesus' tall claims that they were upset about. It wasn't that he opened Isaiah 61 and said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's not what they stumbled over. In fact, when they considered, when they first considered anyway, that God's anointed one might have finally come, they were glad. So what was the problem? The problem wasn't that Messiah had possibly come. The problem rather came in when it dawned on them that the supposed Messiah had played stickball in their backyards. That the supposed Messiah had repaired their broken plows and yokes for them. That the supposed Messiah had been sitting next to them for 30 years in the pews in the synagogue. When they thought about all that for a minute or two, then Jesus' claims suddenly became too much to handle. The people of Nazareth, it seems, are almost too familiar with Jesus to be able to receive him as Lord. Too familiar with Jesus for their own good. And I ask you this morning, is it possible... Is it possible for us, religious-type folks, to be too familiar with Jesus and with religion for our own good? Now, maybe, certainly, actually, in many ways, the answer is no. We should be as familiar with Jesus as we can. But in some respects that are slightly different from those in Nazareth, the answer might just be yes. At least that's what the great preacher of an age gone by, J.C. Ryle, thought. He recognized that there are peculiar dangers for those of us who are part of a good church and who spend years and years and years under the sound of the gospel. And here's what he said. We, regular churchgoers, are apt to think lightly of the privilege of an open Bible, a preached gospel, and the liberty of meeting together for public worship. We grow up in the midst of these things and are accustomed to have them without trouble. And the consequence is that we often hold them very cheap. And underrate the extent of our mercies. That last line is significant. When we're always around the gospel, which we should be, there's a danger that we hold the gospel very cheap and underrate the extent of our mercies. Let me tell you what I think he means. Some of us aren't reading our Bibles nearly as thoroughly or regularly or reverently as we know we should. But let us live for a few weeks in persecuted China where we may not even be allowed to own a Bible and where if we did own one, we might always be afraid of having it confiscated. 
and our attitude towards God's word might be a little different. Some of us have yet to take advantage or or even know the advantage of the church prayer meeting. But let us spend some time in Saudi Arabia with no other Christian, perhaps for miles, with whom to have fellowship and prayer. And we might no longer neglect the sweet hour of prayer and the fellowship and the strength that it provides. Some of us take for granted a church where we are absolutely certain that when we come on Sundays and Wednesdays, we're going to hear the truth of God's word, both proclaimed and applied. And because we're so used to it, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us if we lay out here or there. If we miss a service, if we miss a Sunday school, if we neglect the opportunities that Wednesday evenings provide for fellowship and spiritual food. But others of us have perhaps been in other churches or visited around or grown up in a pagan family where we didn't have the privileges that we have here and we know that what we have is not all that common and not to be taken for granted. So yes, it is definitely possible that familiarity with Jesus and with the gospel and with the church can make us slack in listening carefully to what he has to say. It's even possible that familiarity with Jesus and with the gospel and with the church can keep us out of heaven. Now that doesn't sound right, so let me explain what I mean. It's not that knowing Jesus keeps you out of heaven. It's that being around all of this religious stuff can numb you to the reality of your own lost condition. And so it could be that some of you are sitting in this very room this morning and you're so familiar with all the stories about Jesus. You're so used to being in church. You're so steeped in all the Sunday school answers that has never occurred to you that mere knowledge of and familiarity with religious things cannot save you. Some of you may know all about Jesus and that's good and you should, but you've never actually repented of your sins and come to Jesus. And you've assumed and told yourself that you're okay because you're here or maybe because you made a profession of faith somewhere along the line and you went through the waters. But you know when you stop and think about it for a moment or two that you've never actually come to Jesus. You've only come to church. And perhaps your familiarity with Christianity is the very thing that is numbing your soul to the obvious reality of your sin and your separation from God. And if that is you this morning, then Paul says to you in Ephesians 5, Awake, sleeper, awake and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Don't be so comfortable with church and with religious vocabulary that your soul goes to sleep and never wakes up. Wake up today and run to Jesus. And let me say this as well before we leave this point. It may be high time for some of us who are true believers to wake up as well. Wasn't it wonderful when you first believed? Wasn't it wonderful when you first realized that the burden of your sins had fallen off of your back and your soul was able to leap for joy, for real joy for the first time in your life? Wasn't that amazing? Wasn't it amazing when you first realized that God loved you, even you, so much that he would give up his only begotten son for you? Wasn't that phenomenal to learn that Jesus would become obedient to the point of death for you? When you first believed, it was an amazing thing. When you realized that he who knew no sin became sin on your behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God in him, you were staggered. You were amazed. You sang for joy. Surely it was staggering if you've really come to Jesus. 
But let me ask you, is it still staggering? Do you still find yourself stunned at how much Jesus loves you? Is the gospel still to you almost too good to be true? Do you still stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love you, a sinner, condemned, unclean? Do you still sometimes tear up when you sing about the Savior and his love? Or is it that this Christianity stuff has become all too routine for you? Perhaps for some of us who are real believers, it's become all too routine. The gospel of God's Son, because we hear it so often, has become simply nice and true and necessary religious history, but no longer emotional and overwhelming for us. So if you're a Christian this morning, beware of the danger of becoming too lackadaisical about, too comfortable with, too used to the good news. Don't let familiarity with the crucified Savior, which is good, Breed in your soul a humdrum response to his love. So then, why is no prophet welcome in his own hometown? First, because sometimes familiarity not only breeds contempt, as it did in Nazareth, but sometimes familiarity breeds apathy and routine. But there's a second reason why no prophet is welcome in his hometown, and that is entitlement. First, familiarity. Second, entitlement. When you read verses 25 through 27, you get the sense that based on what Jesus says there, the people in Nazareth thought they were entitled to Jesus' blessings and help and ministry simply because they were Israelites and more specifically because they were Nazarenes from Jesus' own hometown. Jesus told the home folks, therefore, two Old Testament stories. And the reason why he told these stories is to strike out against their sense of Jewish entitlement. The first story in verses 25 and 26 comes from 1 Kings 17. And I want you to read it with me. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, what is Jesus trying to say with this story? Let me paraphrase for you what he means. As he looks his hometown people in the eyes, he says to them, you may think that because you're Jewish and because you are from the same hometown as me, that God somehow owes you his blessings, that God somehow looks upon you and determines that you are more worthy of his favor than other people. But Jesus says, let me remind you of the widow in first Kings 17. She was the only person to whom God sent his special blessings in those days of famine. It was only her jar of oil that was miraculously filled again and again and again. And therefore, it was only her who had an endless supply of food while other people were starving to death. Only her. And he says she was from Zarephath, of all places, in the pagan land of Sidon. And Jesus says God could have sent Elijah to some Israelite widow, couldn't he? He could have sent Elijah to someone in the land of Israel, to someone in need among the people of Israel. But instead, he sent Elijah to Zarephath. And so Jesus is saying to these people, don't think for one minute that your religious or ethnic status somehow makes you more valuable to God or more worthy of his blessing. 
And then Jesus said the same sort of thing again in verse 27, reminding his neighbors of the story this time of Naaman the Syrian, who was an idol worshiper, whose story we can read in 2 Kings 5. But just read what Jesus says about him there in verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, Jesus says, remember Naaman? He wasn't Jewish either. And God passed over many Jewish lepers and sent relief and healing only to Naaman, the pagan idol worshiper. So don't think that your status as Israelites or even as Nazarenes entitles you to God's favor. God has mercy, Romans 9, 15, on whom he has mercy. Now, why is Jesus saying all this? Is he anti-Jewish? Of course not. Wasn't this the same Jesus who said in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus loved the people of Israel. All throughout the Gospels, we see how he loved and loves his ethnic brothers and sisters, the children of Israel. So he's not being anti-Jewish in Luke 4. And if he's not being anti-Jewish, then why the rhetoric in favor of Gentiles over Jews? Well, perhaps it was a precursor to the fact that it would be primarily Gentiles who would respond, not Jews, but Gentiles who would respond to his offer of forgiveness and new life. But more immediately, as we said a few moments ago, Jesus gave these examples of God's mercy to the Gentile widow and to the pagan Syrian Naaman because Jesus knew the tendency of the people's hearts in Nazareth. He knew that because of their familiarity with him, because they were Israelites, because of their Jewishness, and because they lived just down the street from his family, they were going to be tempted to think, if anyone's entitled to God's special blessings... If anyone deserves God's help, if anyone has a unique claim on Jesus' services, indeed, if Jesus owes anyone anything, it would be us. That's what they thought. If Jesus owes anyone anything, surely it's us who are so close to him. And that's why a prophet is so rarely welcome in his hometown, because the hometown folks always tend to think that he owes them something. They believe that he ought to be under their thumb and in their hip pockets in certain respects. They reckon that they are entitled to special treatment, more so than other people. And and everyone likes special treatment, don't they? All of us like to have friends in high places so that we can move to the front of the line or get away with bending the rules or rub shoulders with the elite or whatever it may be. Everyone likes to be able to call in a few favors now and again. Jesus is saying to his neighbors and friends, it doesn't work that way with God's prophets. And it doesn't work that way with God. I'm not beholden to you, he says to them. And you are not entitled to my blessings. Sense of entitlement. That was the particular pitfall for those who were close to Jesus in the first century. And I say to you again this morning that that is a particular danger for those of us who live, as it were, in Jesus' modern day hometown. What is Jesus' modern day hometown? Well, this is it, isn't it? We're the ones who are close to Jesus. We're the ones who know all the facts about him. We're the ones who talk to him. It's the church. And isn't it easy for us religious types to begin to think of ourselves as better than other people? Isn't it easy to look down on other people who don't know Jesus like we do? To think that our close association with him somehow makes us more worthy are more important than everyone else. Isn't it easy, once we become familiar with Jesus and settled into his church, to become holier than thou and cliquish? It's really easy. It's easy to forget where we ourselves have come from. 
to forget what wretches we once were and still are. But never forget what Jesus says here. Never forget that God does not owe us anything. We may come to church every Sunday morning and be here for the prayer meeting and be here for Sunday school and come every Wednesday night and serve the church and give our tithes plus. And we should do all those things, but none of that makes Jesus beholden to us. Now, yes, God has special love towards and reserves special blessings for those of his adopted children who have believed on Christ. Yes, in the heavenly places, we are heirs of far greater riches than our unbelieving neighbors and friends. But that does not mean that we deserve them. It does not mean that we are entitled to them. It doesn't mean that God owes us anything. It doesn't mean, for instance, that he has to perform his miracles of healing on you rather than on your unbelieving neighbor. It doesn't mean that God is obligated to bump you to the front of the line in a famine. Whether it be a famine of food or a famine financially, it doesn't mean that. Now, God may do that. And when you're sick and when you're struggling, I pray that he will. But if he does, it won't be because you are entitled or because God is required to do exactly what I ask him to do, will it? Rather, if God shows you kindness, any kindness at all, it will be as it was for Naaman and the Sidonian widow out of the sheer overflow of his grace and his mercy. And we should thank God for that. We should thank God that God does not owe us anything. And here's why. Because... The fact that God does not owe us anything means that God does not have to give us anything to which we're entitled. He doesn't have to treat us the way we deserve. Because if God gave us that to which we were entitled, it wouldn't be a happy gift, would it? It wouldn't be healing. It wouldn't be provision in a famine. It wouldn't be forgiveness, certainly. And it wouldn't be eternal life. Thank God that he's not owing you anything, but rather deals with you on the basis of of grace and remember that your religious activity your presence in Jesus hometown so to speak is good and healthy and right but it does not make God beholden to you it's all a gift and speaking of God's free undeserved gifts we need to turn quickly and finally to act 3 act 3 a hill on which to die verses 28 29 and 30 I hope this morning as I remind you that God doesn't owe you anything, that none of you are welling up with anger like the people in Nazareth were. It's possible that someone is. I hope not. And the reason I hope not, not only for your sake, but for my sake, is because the scene that day in Nazareth was quite ugly, wasn't it? In fact, had the people of Nazareth gotten their way, the scene in verses 28, 29, and 30 would have been just as ugly as the bloody scene that's recorded in Jerusalem some three years later. The people were, verse 28, filled with rage as they heard these things. And verse 29, they led Jesus to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, and they were hell-bent on throwing him over the edge to his death. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And as far as we know, Jesus never returned to his hometown again. It's quite an amazing conclusion to the story, is it not? I think Luke is hinting at the fact that some sort of miracle happened here. 
Some sort of miracle must have happened. It wasn't that Jesus was strong as an ox and was able to just bull his way out of the crowd. He simply passed through their midst. It's an amazing testimony, isn't it, to the power of God, to God's ability to work miracles. And it's an amazing reminder of God's care for those whom he loves. The same care he gives to Jesus in verse 30 is the care that he offers you. You don't demand it. You don't think you're entitled to it. But as a gift of God's grace, he cares for you just as he cares for Jesus. For not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father much less God's only begotten Son and those whom He has purchased with His own blood. Jesus' miraculous and peaceful escape is also a reminder of God's mercy. For Luke does not say that Jesus called down fire from heaven and consumed His adversaries. Jesus could have done that, couldn't He? The people at Nazareth deserved judgment. They deserved to die on that hill that day. But they didn't die that day. Instead, Jesus simply passed through them and went his way. And maybe, we don't know, but maybe because of Jesus' amazing patience and mercy that day in Nazareth, some of these people actually lived longer than they deserved, in fact, long enough to repent and believe. And hasn't God done that for you? Hasn't he done that for you? Can't you remember times when God would have been completely justified to wipe you from the face of the earth every time you sin? And yet he hasn't done it. He's been patient towards you as Jesus was this day, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there is in Jesus' miraculous escape from the angry mob at Nazareth, a demonstration of God's power and of his care for his own and of his mercy. But I want you to see something else, something more significant before we finish this morning. I want you to ask yourself, why didn't Jesus die that day? Why didn't he just go ahead and die at Nazareth? Wouldn't that have been good enough? Wouldn't his death at the hands of the Nazarenes have been just as good as a sacrifice for our sins as his death three years later at Jerusalem? Why didn't God just end all the misery and opposition and just take Jesus here? Wouldn't that have sufficed? The answer is no. No, it wouldn't have. Death at the hands of the Nazarenes would not have sufficed as an offering for our sins. For there was another hill on which Jesus had to die. Not the hill of Nazareth, but the trash heap called Golgotha, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Because it was in Jerusalem that sacrificial lambs were always offered. And it was in Jerusalem where there were Roman garrisons stationed that practiced crucifixion, where all the ancient prophecies about the Messiah would be able to be fulfilled. You know the ones that say that the Messiah would be pierced hand and foot, Psalm 22. The ones that say He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. That particular kind of death, death by crucifixion, prophesied in the Old Testament would not have happened that day at Nazareth. So Jesus had to pass through their midst. He had to go forward on His way eventually to Jerusalem. And He had to go to Jerusalem also because it would only be after three more years of trials and testings that Jesus would finally be able to say that he had been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, and therefore fully able to sympathize with our weaknesses. So when Jesus came to the hill at Nazareth and faced death at the hands of his hometown neighbors, he couldn't die. He still had work to do and places to go. So this hill 
a hill on which perhaps as a child he had played chase or log rolled with his friends. This hill was not the hill on which he was to die. But thank God there was a hill on which Jesus would die. Thank God that that day on the trash heap outside Jerusalem, that day as he was surrounded and led away by another angry mob filled with rage, thank God that that day he did not pass through their midst and go his way. Thank God that on that day in Jerusalem, he did not call 10,000 angels to his side to rescue him, but instead became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And thank God that this day, on the top of this hill, that the ancient settlers called a pleasant ridge, Jesus is still holding out his hands, patient towards you, Second Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And if you would, this morning, awaken out of the slumber that religious familiarity can cause, if you would repent of any sense of religious pride and entitlement that you feel, and if you would bow down on your face and plead with Jesus to forgive your sins, then you would hear Jesus say to you, as he said to the people in Nazareth today, this scripture, that God is not willing for you to perish but to come to repentance today, this scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. 